You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. So in our efforts sometimes to share our faith and fulfill the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, a major temptation for us is to approach it from the side issues. The side issues being laws and legislators that are out there, the side issues being the behaviors that we witness and see from our friends or family or from the world in general, as opposed to addressing it from the core issue. The core issue being that of the heart, a heart that will only change, therefore only changing the behaviors and choices one makes through the redemptive power of Jesus Christ and the cross. So when we confront our family member or friend who is living on sin, and I don't think this should ever be done on social media, I think in person's the best. We should not talk to them about so much so about their choices of whatever it is, fill in the blank, but instead talk to them about Christ, his love for them, his grace for them, and his desire to help them overcome those destructive behaviors that we see. See, when we talk about those side issues, it's like we're trying to put a band-aid on a broken arm. Now, you might help with the surface wound if one was involved in it, but that bone's never going to heal properly or correctly. It needs to be set. Sometimes surgery needs to take place in order for it to really heal, for that person to be able to regain use of that again and all of its use that it's supposed to have. And that, in that same respect is Christ in somebody's life and in their heart as opposed to the side issues. Last week, we took an in-depth look at Paul's prayer over this young church in Colossae. If you're new with us or haven't been here in a while, we're in the book of Colossians. And so last week, we looked at uh, several verses in Colossians, 9 through 13 or 14, I believe. 14 it was. And in that prayer that, that Paul prayed for them by God through the Holy Spirit and because of Jesus Christ, he prayed these three things, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And if you weren't here, go back onto our website and check it out. I don't not, can't confirm that it's on there just yet, but go back and check it out and listen to it because there is so much more meaning than these three statements in my review to this. So I really encourage you to go back and check that out. But the first one being that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The second, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. A life-bearing fruit of that growing knowledge of God's will. And then, that they would be strengthened to accomplish and do these things with all power according to God's glorious might. An incredible prayer that echoes through time for all believers today. 
one that we should often pray for ourselves and especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so after Paul prayed for the Colossians, he wasted no time with the superficial surface issues, taking a firing a direct hit at the Gnostic beliefs that we talked about last week of the Colossians with the only thing that would truly change their beliefs, the core solution for false beliefs and teaching, the only one who can transform the lives and behaviors, Jesus Christ. And so if you would stand with me while we read this morning's passage, and then kiddos, after we're done reading, you can be dismissed. I want you to be in here. I know my notes are off on that, guys, so thank you, but I want, I want our kids to hear us reading the Word of God. It is never too young and never too early. And if we want them to grow in their knowledge and wisdom and understanding, we start them now. And it will soak in and sink in. And as they grow in maturity, their understanding will grow in maturity. So, kiddos, I'm glad you're in here with us while we read this section. And then right after we're done, you're welcome to be dismissed to your classes. And again, if you're new with us, that's kindergarten through third grade. And they'll be in this hallway when, they, when we are done. So Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. Feel free to read along with me if you'd like. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Amen. This is God's words. You may be seated. Kiddos, have a good class if you decide to go. This section of Scripture, verses 15 through 20 in particular, is one of the best passages in Scripture. One of the grandest arguments, if you will, and explanations for Christ's deity, His work on the cross, and His supremacy. So for those of us who have a saving, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When we read or hear this passage, it should ignite something within us. This shouldn't be a passage we ever get tired of. Ever. In fact, our hearts should be doing backflips when we hear this because it is because of Christ and Him alone that we have salvation our salvation is in christ and christ alone our salvation is because of christ and christ alone our future 
glorified eternal life is through Christ and Christ alone. So this morning, if you find yourself wanting to let out an amen or a hallelujah or a praise the Lord, do it, okay? Make sure I got two parameters for you, all right? So we don't get it too unruly here, all right? We don't, you know, I, you know Gary would be like, no, Matt, let it go. And I'm like, I don't know, Gary. <laughs> two parameters. One, you're doing it to praise God. And you're testifying to what he says is true and you believe it in your heart. And that's why you're saying, amen, praise the Lord, or hallelujah. And you're not doing it because of anything I have said. All right? It's not about me getting applause. It's about him. Okay? Or some of us might be tempted to be like, hey, I wonder if people look at me if I say amen. Don't do it for that reason either. All right? That's not a good reason. Okay. Got our parameters in place. You have permission to testify about the goodness of God, the truth of his word. All right, let's jump in. So we're going to go verse by verse this morning through this as opposed to breaking it up into sections like we have the first couple weeks of this series in Colossians. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Amen. He is. Jesus Christ is described here as the image of the invisible God, God being described as invisible through the Old and New Testament. So if you're familiar with scriptures, you've come across that before. You've read that. If you're not familiar with that, I would encourage you to get more familiar with that. That should be something that you're like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've read that before. I've heard that before. Jesus being the only one who has seen God the Father and he makes God known. And we can see that in John 1.18. Now, I know there's Moses in the Old Testament that asked to see God's glory. But if you look at the whole part of that scripture in that verse, God says, okay, I'll grant it. You can see a part of my glory as I walk by. And as he doesn't really walk by, God's not a person and that walks, but his glory, a portion of his glory, passes by in front of Moses. And God, not that God literally maybe has a hand, but scripture explains it that way so we can grasp hold of it. God protects Moses by shielding him from his glory as he goes by. So even Moses did not see him in his full glory. I believe our human bodies could not stay intact in seeing his glory. If you see in time and time again in scripture where a man or a woman is before an angel or when Jesus has appeared to them before he was incarnate in flesh, they fell over. That was their response the glory of the angel, the glory of that appearing was so much so they could not stand up. And even Jesus in flesh, when they came to get him in the garden and they said, where's this Jesus? Who is he? He said, I am. And they went. This is something we cannot comprehend or grasp. I believe that our human fleshly bodies could not fully handle his glory. I don't know if we'd implode or explode or, I don't know, cease to, <laughs> our bodies would cease to exist, our souls wouldn't, but his glory is unbelievable. And only Jesus has the power and authority and the glory to see him until we are reunited with him someday in our new bodies. Jesus described as the image or representation of God. 
is far more than saying, hey, Jesus is like a picture of God. It's not like it's a scrapbook or a photo album here. It carries with it the idea of revealing the personal character of God. And we can see that in Proverbs 8. We can see that in Song of Psalms 7. And as one commentator put it, Jesus is the revelation of what God is really like. And he based that thought from Hebrews 1.3. Paul emphasizing this. And then when you look at the bigger context of this verse within the passage in verse 19, Christ had all of God's fullness within him. All of God's fullness within him. Christ being the firstborn over all creation also provides additional meaning here. Paul is not saying that Christ was physically born first. Okay? He is not saying that. So in order to understand what Paul's really saying here, we must look at the historical context of what that means, as well as the context of this verse within the passage. Historically, the firstborn during this time in history was the one who received the inheritance. They had the role of being the leader, so to speak, of the family after the father passed away. So in essence, that's part of what Paul is saying here about Christ. And then we go on to verse 17 and we even jump into verse 18. We see that Paul is saying he's before all things. Not that he was physically born first before everybody else. But that he's actually before all things going back to eternity past with God. And then re-emphasizing it again in verse 18, he is the beginning. You guys might recall a passage in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, where God is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and Jesus Christ is also the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. Christ being the firstborn in this passage, therefore, means so much more than just a picture of God. Signifies his importance in that he is before and above all creation. Not that Christ was spiritually born first. Some back, some, at some point at the beginning, God, and then at some point Jesus was born. It was not like that. So when we study scripture, we must always keep in mind the context of what's being said. It can be dangerous to take a verse out of scripture by itself and just bank our what we believe on that. Many pseudo-Christian religions do this very thing. Mormons, Church of Latter-day Saints, and what they believe, they have done that. They take portions of scripture out and they make it mean what they think it means, what they want it to be, not what Scripture says it means. Jehovah's Witnesses, same thing. With this section of Scripture, this very section, they take this out, they take firstborn, and they say, oh, he was born back when the archangel Michael was born. When God created him, God created Jesus at the same time. And then when Jesus was born on earth, he wasn't God also, he was just a man then. And they forget and leave out verse 17 and 18 and 19 where it talks about Christ being at the beginning, before the beginning, at creation, before creation. They leave all that out. Prosperity gospel does the same thing. They take portions of scripture and apply to it what they want it to mean, what feels good 
to them and ignore the context of the rest of Scripture. And so one thought is, when we are engaged with somebody at our door or in town who claims to be a part of one of these other beliefs, one of these other groups that we can be tempted to want to study up on so we can like argue with them and have all of this knowledge to understand what they believe and why they're wrong. Maybe eventually, after you have a relationship, that can be a good approach. That shouldn't be our first approach. Not that that information isn't good for ourselves to understand and know, but what's most important is that we spend that time studying scriptures for ourselves in context so that we understand and know the truth. And I know there's a banker or two in the room, and I'm an ex-banker, and the way that tellers are trained to detect counterfeit money is not to sit there and have them go to class and handle counterfeit money all day long and all of these things. They might have a couple of small trainings to, of characteristics of it, but what they do is they have those tellers handle the real money day in and day out, and day in and day out, and day in and day out. And so when they're counting that money and that counterfeit bow comes through, they go, oh, that felt different. They may not know what it is, but they're like, that felt different. I'm going to set that aside. I need to come back and research that. That should be us with Scripture. That should be us when we're reading books written by man or a blog post online. And I could list off about 30 different people out there who write a lot of books and speak at a lot of things or are speaking false gospel messages. I'm not going to bash them. If you want to know, we can meet at another time and we can talk through that list if you want. But we need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who eagerly received the scripture that was being taught to them and then the words that were being taught to them eagerly received them, took them on their own daily and looked at the truth of the scripture compared it to make sure it was true and that is us if it's me up here go home study it for yourself is really is Matt really saying and I I do my very best and pray and I'm on my knees and face weekly about this and Gary is too when he preaches and Tony is too when he shares the message and others that do we can mess up we're men it is your responsibility to take what we say Compare it to the truth of Scripture, what anyone says or writes, and compare it to the truth of Scripture to make sure it's accurate and true. And the more you're in the truth, the more that you're going to be like, oh, that didn't sound right. That sounded off. Or reading along in a book or a blog or whatever, that, that felt off. There's something inside me that I feel uncomfortable about what was said. What is that? I need to look into that before moving forward or reading more or understanding, okay? We all have that responsibility as Christians. That's not my job to do that for you. If you are only coming to, and this is the only place on Sunday morning that you're getting God's word, you are malnourished. You've got to be in the truth of God's word yourself. I don't care who is teaching, I don't care how good they are, you will be malnourished if you're not in the word yourself. Verse 16, we won't spend as much time on the rest of the verses, but that one was very important that we 
establish the foundation going forward. So verse 16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions. I really don't think Paul left anything out here. I really don't. Everything was created by Christ. He was an intricate, detailed, intentional part of creation at the beginning. So in Genesis 1-1, when it says God created, God there is also Jesus Christ. Who else was with him? The Holy Spirit. They were all there at the beginning. Here Paul expands on Christ's supremacy from verse 15 by adding that he was also involved with creation. All things. That's what we can see. Matter. Remember last week, the Gnostics were like, matter is evil. That's what they were believing. Things that we can see and feel and taste and touch, that's evil. Paul's saying, God created it. Context of scripture, God is not evil. God cannot have evil in his presence. Why and how could God even create something that was evil? God created that which was visible, matter. Then he also created that which was invisible. Hey, Gnostics, get what? He created knowledge, too. Then he also created kingdoms on earth and heavenly realms. And scriptures tell us that God appoints who is on the thrones and when and where and why. And so when we're upset with leaders in the government, God has reason and purpose for them being there. Our part, pray for him. Yes, fight against horrible laws like it's okay to have an abortion and other things like that. Absolutely. At the same time, pray for the leaders. Being mad at them, ranting against them online, personally, that's not going to solve anything. That's not getting anywhere. They need Christ. Christ will change their hearts, therefore what they choose and how they legislate. Not us yelling at them about how dumb their insurance plan is. Right? Christ is who they need and what they need. And for all the sci-fi fans out there, if there are other dimensions, Christ created those too. It's kind of like that's in the parentheses. That's kind of my own little, you know, half-joking way of saying this. If there is one of those other dimensions, portals or whatever, yeah, he created those too. He created everything. As one preacher likes to put it, everything. That's like his way of saying it's bolded, capitalized, italicized, underlined, and exclamation pointed. Everything. My family's laughing because they know which preacher I'm talking about. <laughs> Verse 17. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. As we've seen, Christ has created all things, and not only that, he is before all things, and then Paul anties it up one more level and says he holds all things together. He is not a savior who created everything like winding up a top and letting it go and watching what it does and sitting back. Letting the chips fall wherever they may please and just kind of sitting back up there and snickering at all of our ridiculous choices and trying to make it happen. That is not our Savior. That is not Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us here. He holds all things together. 
Amen. Every molecule, every atom, every proton, every neutron, every cell, every single strand of DNA, he holds it all together. All of it. He is actively involved with every part of creation, every second, every millisecond of our lives. And therefore, we can still hope and have confidence in him that he has plan and purpose and meaning even in the pain and the loss and the tragedy. He is holding it all together. Continuing on in verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Again, Paul's saying, hey, if you didn't get it the other times, I'm saying it again, not because I'm wanting to repeat myself. I've lost my mind, not because I want to waste ink. It's because I don't think you got it. Hey, by the way, he's the beginning. I'm saying it again. The firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Firstborn from the dead, meaning he is the only one that has raised himself from the dead. There have been people who have been raised from the dead by God. But he is the only one who has raised himself from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have first place in everything. And when he says here that he is the head of the church, he wants to make sure that this young faith family in Colossae makes no mistake, no misunderstanding, who is truly over their church. Not just their local church, but who is over the church globally. It is Jesus Christ, period. And here at New Life, he is over us. He is our chief shepherd, me, Gary, Tony, your elders, we are under-shepherds of him. We are under his authority, his leadership, not ours and not our opinions. When we meet to talk about this direction of the church or to make decisions for the church, we cry out to him for wisdom and help. We need it. So if you ever wonder what we're doing around here or what's going on or why we're doing something, first of all, pray for us that we would follow the authority and the leadership of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, as we strive and desire to do. Second, as you continue to pray, feel free to ask us why. We don't have anything to hide. Feel free to ask us why. Our desire here at New Life Church, is that in everything we teach on, we sing about any ministry we support or do. It is all about accomplishing our mission. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's in the communicator. I'll say it right now. We exist to love God, to love others, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The great commandment and the great commission. Love God love others, make disciples of Jesus Christ. If we are doing those things well, we will have done what God has called us to do, what Christ, the head of our church, wants and desires us to do. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. 
Paul explaining to them, as well as us today, that the fullness of God fully dwells in Christ. Not a temporary dwelling, only when he was not on earth. No, but fully and completely before he came, was born to earth, incarnate in flesh, and after today, for all eternity, God's fullness fully dwells in Christ. Christ is not lesser than God. And Paul is wanting to drive that point home. His fullness fully, always, constantly dwells in Christ. And as we talked about in verse 15, more than a representation. Only one can truly have God's fullness fully dwell in him. And that's Jesus Christ. And then I love this part of this verse. God was pleased for this to happen. And God's generosity saying, it's not all about me. He's saying, I'm wanting this to share this in Jesus. I'm wanting to share this in the Holy Spirit. And then through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he shares it with us. As one theologian put it, salvation is God's joyous work. What an inviting revelation to a lost world. A lost world. Depending on our childhood and our father figures, or shame and guilt that we deal with, we can mistakenly view God as the disciplinary figure only. Waiting for me to mess up. Catch me doing wrong. Oh, he's disappointed in me again. And we forget the side of God who loves us dearly. We forget the side of God who created heaven for us to enjoy with him and provided the way for us to get there, Jesus Christ. That part of us that thinks that God's up there with the switch waiting to get us, believe it or not, it's pride. It's pride in our heart thinking that I'm too bad or I'm not good enough. As opposed to saying, of course I'm not good enough. But Jesus Christ is and he paid that price for me. So that I can know the God who loves me, who sent Jesus Christ to die for me so that I can enjoy his pleasures, enjoy forever. And he gives us glimpses, shadows of it here on earth, a sunset, a sunrise, the beauty of a flower, love in a marriage where a husband and wife love each other, love between a parent and child. He gives us glimpses and snapshots along the way. God was fully pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now the literal sense of the word reconcile here is to call back into union. Call back into union. So in this verse, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ called us back, reconciling us into the union and relationship with God the Father through the sacrifice of his blood and life on, on earth, his life, death on the cross. 
Do you see that in that verse? Through Jesus, he called us back. Called everything back to himself. A union and relationship with him. When we answer that call back, he's already made the call. We've got to answer. Eternal life. Wisdom. Grace, love to help you in this life until eternal life. It's yours. Will you answer? Will you answer his call? When we do, our union with God is restored to what it was meant to be from the beginning. What the first man and woman had until they chose to sin. An unashamed, intimate relationship with him. Talking with him. I believe audibly. Where there was no pain. Where there was no sorrow. Where there was no loss and tragedy. It was sin that ushered that into the world. Jesus is calling us back to that. Through his sacrifice. Verse 21. Once you were alienated... And hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. And Paul, again, explaining what separates us from God. Those evil actions, our sins, severing, severing, sorry, severing the union for all men and women to be in that relationship with God. God created it to be that way from the beginning. He created us to not have to experience the death and loss of strategy. Sin ushered all that into the world, the brokenness and fallen world. So Christ reconciles it, calls us back into it because of our evil actions. Our minds are alienated from God, foreign to God. Our minds are hostile against God and His will because of sin. But God in His infinite mercy. I sinned, I blew it, but God... I can't, I can't do this, God. It hurts too much. But God. Made peace through Christ's shed blood on the cross. And it's not just a repairing of that severed union with him. It's making it new and better. See, I believe that our union with him in heaven will be even grander than what it was in the garden for Adam and Eve. Because of Jesus Christ's ultimate sacrifice, paving that way for us. And verse 22 spells out what that saving grace of Jesus Christ on the cross accomplished for us. And also continues to confirm that Jesus was God in flesh to this church. And to us today, but now he, Christ, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, blameless before him. Holy, faultless, blameless. Just wash over you. To just let that just wash over you, holy, faultless, and 
blameless. Really? I can be that? Before God? Yes. Someday, without sin, today, still having sin, but when God looks at me, when He looks at you, if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, He does not see your sin. He sees the perfect blood of Christ shed on the cross. He sees His Son. Christ is the core solution. Last verse for our text today, our passage today. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So after all of these great things about Christ, we can read this verse and jump to a conclusion that we can be like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. You mean this could go away? I could lose this? It's like it could just shift away? I could just drift and shift away without having any say in this? And that's why we have to study Scripture. We have to go more in depth to truly understand it. And in doing so here, looking at how this phrasing and terminology is constructed in the Greek, which it was originally written in, it can be paraphrased as if we were writing it today in English. We might say it like this. So all of what I just said about Christ, he's presenting you holy, blameless, faultless before God. So anyways, if you do not stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will though, it's like Paul is saying that. And I'm sure you will. And he's assuming that they'll continue on. And, and Paul can be confident of this church in saying that because of what he said back at the beginning of the chapter. What he said back in verse 6, that the gospel came to them and was bearing fruit all over the world, just as it was from when they first heard about it. I realize that people, myself included at times in my life, struggle with, am I still saved? I have been making some really terrible, stupid choices. And I, yeah, I asked him to come into my life to forgive me of my sins, but I, I've really been a numbskull lately. So am I, am I still okay? What Paul is saying here is, them bearing their fruit is demonstration of their salvation. It's not their salvation but it's demonstration of it. If there is no struggle in us, if there's nothing calling us to come back to Him, then we need to explore that further. There's one story that I've shared here once before about a young man who was struggling with this and a missionary came to town, an evangelist, I forget which was a scenario, and and. The young man went to him afterward and just said, I just don't know. I just don't know. I just, I just don't feel it. I'm just not sure. And the, and the missionary, the evangelist said, well, then give it up. Walk away. 
God says either before me or against me. So quit struggling. Eat, drink, and be merry. And the young man was like, but, but I can't. And he said, and that's how you know you're saved. You can't. You can't walk away and give up on it. And so we obviously don't need to go into some kind of a systematic theology here. Some of us might even believe a little bit differently on this topic in this room, and that's okay. But I believe that truth of what I shared of that story applies. If Christ is in you, there is going to be fruit. And some of our fruit is going to look different than another's. Only God truly knows the heart. Only God truly knows the heart. So who are we as men and women to judge? We can say, I don't know. We can be concerned and pray for them. Absolutely. But to say, I just don't think you're saved. I mean, you know, you say you love Jesus, but you go dancing every Friday night. (laughs) Nothing wrong with dancing. Just using a silly example. That's not our place to say. If it's a brother or sister in Christ who is continuing to sin, it's our privilege as their brother or sister in Christ in love to go to them and say, how can I help you? How can I walk beside you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Can you, would you be willing to text me at two in the morning when you're tempted to take that next time? Would you be willing to call me or text me or let me be your accountability partner on a piece of software so that when you're tempted to pull up that image on that screen, it alerts me and I know to pray for you and to call you so that you can be strong. When you think that your value is based on whether or not a boyfriend or girlfriend loves you and so you're willing to give up your body to their selfish desires, how can I be there for you so that you can stand strong? As opposed to saving yourself for Christ and a spouse that God might have for you in your future. That is our response. 1 commentator summed up this verse this way the positive application of Paul's words are this the gospel does not work like magic the mind the heart and the will must be involved our minds must feed on Christ and his word our hearts are to focus on him and love our wills are to take their practice and pattern from him present faith leads to present results Present drinking is for present thirst. We must fill our lives every day from him. And Paul finishes his verse with, I, Paul, have become a servant of this gospel. Writing this letter from prison, yet staying on point. If somebody were to summarize us and our lives, Would they say that we are a servant of the gospel? Friends, I believe we will not go wrong making that one of our chief objectives in life. To be servants of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This passage beautifully and extravagantly explains the supremacy of Christ like no other. That only Jesus Christ is the core solution to a world full of loss and pain. Only Jesus can transform hearts that will then transform lives, completely explaining that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Or the things on earth, the things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.